I invite you to open your Bibles on page 384. I'm going to read Psalms 2. That is page 384. The Bible says, Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break the chains, they say, and throw off the fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me. And I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possessions. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them into pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The second reading is Acts 3, uh, in two parts, verses 1 to 17. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, at three in the afternoon. Now a man, crippled from birth, was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he is put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and running and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed. And you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One, and you asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. Uh, Acts 4, verses 13 to 31. 
When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realised that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows that they have done an outstanding miracle and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in his name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is, in, whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. Any further threats, they let them go. After, oh, sorry. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them, because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over forty years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do these nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. After... They prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Thanks be to God. This is the word of God. Thanks indeed. It's worth keeping open uh, Acts 3 and 4. That's what we'll be looking at more closely. Again, uh, welcome. Uh, if you're visiting or passing through, we've started a series of Acts. We're picking up. Uh, Jesus had set the task of making him known to the ends of the earth. Uh, it's only just begun. It's still only localised and small. Uh, and we see where it takes us and where indeed it impacts us as we look again at Acts this morning. Uh, but why don't we pray that God would speak to each of us this moment. Our Lord and Father, we thank you for your word. Thanks for preserving it, for keeping it uh, through the generations. But thanks... Most of all, that it is not a dead or old word, but it is living, active and powerful. And we pray that through it and by your spirit, you might speak to us this morning. Help us to know you more clearly. Help us to live differently, live in such a way that we please and honour you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's been said that no good deed goes unpunished. It's a little cynical. But most of us have had that sense, haven't we, of, of we've done the right thing only to find ourselves paying for it. Now, I, I list many an example to keep it vague. I, I found myself in the past trying to protect someone's uh, reputation and anonymity after they'd done something wrong and, and, and then trying to fix up the problem only to find I got the blame for it. 
And I couldn't help thinking that, you know, why am I getting punished? I'm doing the... And I suspect we've all had those experiences. You know, those moments where uh, we've done good deeds and yet we've seemingly been punished. They seem to stick in the mind a little more than those many good times where we've been thanked for it. If it is the case that no good deed goes unpunished, how do you think Kirribilli would respond to remarkable goodness in the name of Jesus? Earlier this week, uh, Haley sent around some ways that we as a church hope to do good in this community this year. Uh, there was a list given to, to get Connect leaders to, to sign up for their groups for. Uh, there are things like the fair trade markets and community lunches and, and barbecue lunches for the, the residents of Greenway just down the road. Uh, and it got me thinking, what would be the response if we didn't just stop there, but, but we really inundated the community with goodness? You know, n- not just with works, but even with words about Jesus to explain why. I've been wondering what would happen if, uh, if every person who's here now committed six hours a week in some particular ways. So of the six, let's break it down into three little sections. If everyone, every person here committed two hours a week to gathering here at church, you know, two, two hours to, to gather corporately to worship God, to pray to him, to hear from him, to encourage each other over morning tea, and then if every person committed another two hours to a connect group, to seriously grow in their depth of understanding of the Lord Jesus, to grow and, and considerately and thoughtfully work out how they could spur other people on to love and good deeds. And if everyone else, well, if every person here with that, those final two hours committed to doing good deeds that bless those outside the church community, yeah, you know, whether it's those church-based ones that, that Haley raised, of or, or you know, playtime uh, that serves to connect children and and their carers to each others, and, and does a good deed in that way, or or you know, all sorts of other charity that perhaps harness your gifts. But if we did it in such a way that it wasn't just works, but it was words too, that we spoke of Jesus as the reason behind it. Now, over time, if every one of us did those six hours a week, what would we expect to happen? Would our good deeds in connection to to honouring Jesus go unnoticed? Would they go unpunished? See, our reading from Acts uh, confronts us with that kind of situation. Uh, Two points I want us to grasp. First, that it is right for us to do good in Jesus' name. And secondly, it will get a response. It will be both attractive and strongly opposed. First, it is right to do good in Jesus' name. So we pick up in Acts and and the great news of Jesus has started to spread. There's this community that's built of of almost 3,000 people. But at this stage, it's still small, it's still localised in Jerusalem. And the drama in Acts 3 and 4, Acts kind of hinges on on one dramatic moment and remarkable moment of goodness. So the 3,000 or so believers at the end of Acts 2 are kind of living this idyllic lifestyle, this wonderful community of love and worship as they gather together. Uh, And chapter 3 begins, Peter and John are heading to the temple for worship. Uh, In verse 2, there's a crippled man who's strategically parked himself at the temple gates. Uh, I I say it's strategic, you kind of go, you know, giving to the poor was an, an act of piety. And so he cleverly puts himself exactly in the position where a lot of pious, righteous people are going to walk straight past him. You know, what, what kind of godly person would walk over a beggar to come into church? 
You know, you, you don't do that, do you? You, you, know, you, you do something, you, it acts. You know? He's cleverly placed himself in the path of the people most likely to dish out some cash. And he sees the apostles in verse 3, but what shifts is what happens in verse 4. They engage him. They directly gaze at him. They even tell him, look at me, look at us. You know, all of us are experienced in what you do when you go past beggars. We all know when you're you know, going through Windyard Station and there's someone there or you, you pass the QVB. Uh, even if we want to give them the coin, we can do it in such a way that we don't actually have to slow down. You, know, you can just keep going, you can drop the coin. You certainly don't have to talk to them. You just move on. And what's so strange and what's so exciting about this moment is they actually engage this beggar. You know, what, what is normally this, this quick, indifferent transaction becomes personal. And so in verse 5, there are expectations that are raised. Only for Peter to twist again. He says, no, no, I've got no money. It catches the beggar off guard. Now, why do you want my attention if you haven't got that? It catches us off guard as well because if you've been reading at the end of Acts 2, these 3,000 or so believers had pulled their resources to care for those in need. You know, he may not have had much, Peter and John may not have had much on them at the time, but they certainly had access to money. But he's setting it up for for something more, something greater. What do they say? What I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth walked. And there is this immediate effect. This is goodness at its best. There is a man crippled from birth who ends up walking and leaping. Uh, And the expression there for leaping is an unusual one. It's it's not just saying that he's completely healed. It's picking up this language used in Isaiah 35. Uh, This language used about a joyous time when the glory of the Lord will be displayed. So it's just this moment of unique and exciting goodness. This, this man's life is now turned around. For the first time in his life, uh, he can function normally. For the first time, he, he can work and be self-supporting. Uh, for the first time, he can enter the temple and worship God along with the rest of his people. It's an act of goodness. It's an act of restoration and completion. But the apostles are, are at pains to say it's an act of Jesus' goodness. It's goodness in the name of Jesus. In the same way that that through the Gospels, Jesus did these healings to reveal truths about himself, this healing is the chance for Peter to reveal truth about Jesus. Uh, 3 verse 12, when he stands up to defend it. Uh, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? Uh, And he goes on to talk about what had been done to Jesus in verse 16, uh, explaining how it was done. It is Jesus' name. And the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. It is Jesus' name. That is, it is Jesus' authority that makes this kind of goodness possible. It is Jesus' work. And Peter goes on to, to explain how the, Jesus was using this one good work to one individual to explain how Christ is good to all. You know, in his speech, he explains how they had killed the author of life. This beautiful expression, isn't it? But God raised him. How they had done it in ignorance, not really aware of what they were doing to the righteous one. But in verse 17, uh, now if they, if they reject the risen Christ, it's now willful rejection, not just ignorance. He goes on to explain how if they accept the righteous one and repent, in verse 20 times of refreshing would be coming on them. 
that one act of goodness is actually a sign for goodness to all. And when Peter has to give a second speech before uh, the Sanhedrin in chapter 4 where we picked it up again, he makes clear this act of goodness is Jesus' work, that others might receive greater mercy. 4 verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Again, the word there for saved is um, the same word for healed, but it, it captures a richness of the complete restoration that Jesus is offering. It's an offer for, for all who have faith in him. And tragically, to reject that name is to reject the only means of such salvation. See, it's a moment of goodness in the name of Jesus for one man, but, but it's about Christ creating good. It's about him creating an opportunity for many people to experience that goodness by repenting and being saved. Be clear this morning, it is right to do good in Jesus' name. You know, like Peter and John, we're to follow that pattern of discipleship, of doing good in the name of Jesus. Yeah, we've got to concede that the acts of mercy in Acts are remarkable. You know, there are extraordinary events uh, like God did in Moses' time, like he did in the time of Elijah and Elisha, like, like he did in the time of the Lord Jesus uh, and his life on earth himself. You know, events where um, the perfections of heaven were, were for a moment experienced fully on earth, like a little window opening up to heaven and the full experience gushed through and people sampled it to its maximum. But, but we don't expect that necessarily as normative. God might choose to do it. It's not impossible for him, but it's not the normal pattern. But... But doing good in the name of Jesus is the pattern of Christian life. Our following of him is acts of kindness, works, accompanied by proclaiming Jesus' words. Works and words. Doing good in the name of Jesus. Uh, Lord Shaftesbury uh, was a social reformer of the 19th century. Uh, On his 27th birthday, he made a commitment. He committed himself to the honour of God and the happiness of human beings. In that order. The honour of God and the happiness of human beings. Now he captured that sense, didn't he? It's, it's works in the name of Christ. Uh, he said, all my life is reduced to a transaction between the individual soul and the individual saviour. That is, he saw every deed he did, even as he interacted with other people, was actually an expression of his relationship with Christ. You know, all my life is reduced to a transaction between the individual soul and the individual saviour. You know, we must keep doing good in the name of Jesus. Words and works. I'm aware most of us, uh, just as individuals, tend to one over the other. Uh, some of us more naturally are going to do the, the deeds, but be a little quiet. Some of us more naturally will, will be comfortable talking about Jesus a lot, but maybe so busy doing it, we, we don't kind of get around to doing the good things. Uh, you know, just yesterday I was um, uh, talking to a, a congregation member from another service uh, about caring for a couple who had uh, come to our church looking for help, uh, a couple who were just off the streets and they'd moved into some government housing after a period of being homeless. And we had a great chat about how we could care for them and how we care for them well, how we can make sure that we were supporting them physically, but also how we could make sure that our uh, physical support of them wasn't uh, funding a damaging lifestyle that actually wouldn't be doing them good in the end. Uh, only, only afterwards, only a few hours after, uh, did it strike me that we didn't discuss what would be good for this person spiritually, or this couple spiritually. You know, on this one I'd thought of the works, but not the words. I'd have failed to do 
good in the name of Jesus at that point. And we need to ask God to bring about in each of us that, that natural flow that Peter had. Do you notice how seamless it was for him? You know, for him, doing good was just instinctive. He sees a person in need, so he does what he can. Uh, and his good deeds were just natural conduit for him to speak about Jesus. It may not be that we adopt that six-hour model I suggested at the start of every individual. For, for some of us, that would be too much of a step down. I don't want to encourage that. But to see the, the goodness of Jesus in Acts is actually to become committed to doing good in his name. And if we did, what would happen? What would happen in our community? Our second point, we'll get a response. It will be accepted and strongly opposed. Yet many will lap it up. You know, the wonder and amazement after the healing in, in Acts, Acts 3 verse 10, there's wonder and amazement that the crowds are filled with. And it actually moves on from their amazement at this good deed to life-changing faith. So after they hear the words in 4 verse 4, uh, they respond to it. Many who, 4 verse 4, many who heard the message believed and the number of believers reaches the 5,000 mark. Um, it would have been larger than that actually because in those days it was normal to just include the men, not the women and the children. So it's a huge number of people now who are committed. It, it will attract some. Now, if we are committed to doing good and speaking of Jesus um, openly, then expect a response in this community. It, it won't go unnoticed. We will get a response. Some will be attracted, like those thousands who heard and believed the word. My sister-in-law told me of a family in their suburb going through a really hard time. The family weren't part of church, but um, yeah, the, the effects on what was happening to the family were significant enough that everyone in the community knew what was going on. And this church, a local church, was committed to bringing in meals, offering lifts when hospital appointments were required, uh, caring for kids after school. They, they took it upon themselves just to love dramatically this person in the neighbourhood. And, and it opened up plenty of conversations, both with them about why they were doing it, but also with lots of people in the suburb. You know, word got around that they were doing it. My sister-in-law and her husband actually aren't part of this church, but they just heard about it. Now, kindness alone is not going to bring them into salvation, but, but accompanied with the word of God, we can expect people will come to Christ as their saviour and Lord. They will receive that refreshment. It won't go unnoticed. But sadly, Acts 4 is not dominated by enthusiastic welcome, but powerful opposition. So the religious leaders, uh, they see them preaching of Jesus and the resurrection. And so they lock them up. And they set a quick trial the following day. Uh, and the connections, I suppose, are strong with what happened to Jesus. It's the same people who ran Jesus' trial and had him condemned. And they whip up another court like that. Only, it was only months before that they did it to Jesus. And Peter has to stand, Peter who'd cowardly run away and said, Jesus, don't know him, uh, when Jesus went to the cross. No, this time Peter stands. And Peter explicitly says to them, what we did was in the name of Jesus. 
And at that point, you, as the trial goes on, you see that the kind of perversion of this court. You know, they can't deny it happened. In 4 verse 14, there's a healed guy standing in front of them. They can't kind of deny, they can't cover up that evidence, but they've already made a conclusion irrelevant of the evidence. And so they command in verse 18 that the name of Jesus must not be taught and it must not be spoken of. And so this good deed gets its due punishment. And we can't underestimate the perversity of the human spirit, can we? So ingrained is sin in us that, that we reject what, what's obviously good for us. It's not hard for us as a community to prove that gambling and alcohol abuse causes damage, and yet as a society we're pretty loath to act. In Acts 4.19, Peter poses the, the question to his opposition, judge for yourselves whether it's right to obey God or men. It's not a very hard question, is it? You know, I don't need to do a survey of hands. Is it right to obey God or men? You know, we know it's right to obey God, don't we? The tragedy is that even that question has to be asked. You know, that the tragedy is that the sad reality is that as good as God is, people oppose him. Now, if we did good in the name of Jesus, there will be opposition. Uh, someone in our, our broader church uh, wrote an opinion piece into the paper uh, about what might happen when you die. Uh, the latest count had nearly 600 comments, and I've got to confess, I didn't read them very closely. I kind of scanned over them. I'd suggest about 80% were angry just at the subject being mentioned. As a society, we, we are uncomfortable to speak about things that are eternal, things that are religious, things of God. Uh, in a public school system, certainly a Christian teacher is free to share uh, anecdotes about their kids, they're free to share anecdotes about uh, their holidays, but they can only speak on religious views in response to a specific question a child or a student asks. Because of the way our world is, if we do good in the name of Jesus and we speak of him, then we expect to lose friends. Expect at some points at work you might become a pariah. Expect that there will be people who want to silence you and cut the conversation. In this year that as a church community we're committed to reaching those we know, you know, target, you know thinking intentionally about, about three people who we know and love, three people who don't yet know Jesus and spending this year being able to share with them the wonder of the risen Lord. And we need to be realistic, there will be opposition. Let's be honest, you risk alienating one, maybe even all of those three. Not because you've been offensive, I, I would hope and trust none of you are offensive as you share Jesus, but, but because the Lordship of Christ divides even the closest relationships. Don't forget, some will be attracted though. <laughs> and don't be too disheartened here. Don't forget you are doing them the ultimate good by, by sharing them with them the only name by which they can be saved. Don't forget that, that only the author of life will they get that kind of refreshment and forgiveness and future they need but you will be responded to. Some attracted, some will be opposed. So what's that mean for us? We must obey God boldly. In 4.13, what struck the religious opponents so much was that there were these uneducated men speaking so boldly, so courageously. I mean, who were they to stand up and tell people how to live? In response to being told to be silent, the apostles are bold and they answer back with that question. Yeah, they knew their answer. They knew the obligation was to God and Christ and making him known. And so what do they do upon release? They meet up with other believers and they pray. 
And what's striking about their prayer is what they pray for. So they're about to face opposition. And you kind of think, I know what I'd be praying. What do they pray for, though? Well, first of all, they they pray the words of Psalm 2, uh, words that that talk about how the, the nations, the people of the world, the rulers of the world are going to oppose God's Christ, God's ruler. But, but they don't pray for those leaders to be brought down, which is kind of probably what I would have prayed. Now, they don't pray for the opposition to stop straight away. Um, they don't even pray to be protected and spared from suffering. Instead, 4 verse 29, Now, Lord, consider their threats. Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. They prayed for courage. For us as a community... Suffering is not the worst thing that could happen to us. Being opposed for the name of Jesus is not the worst thing that could happen to us. The worst thing that could happen to us and befall our church is that we might become tepid and compromised and stop doing works and words in the name of Jesus. Opposition because of Christ is just a basic ingredient to Christian living. In John 15, Jesus talks about if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you because no no servant is greater than their master. Peter himself, years after this event, wrote in a letter uh, in 1 Peter 4, he wrote, If you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God you bear that name. Suffering is not the worst thing that will happen to us. Opposition for Jesus is not the worst thing that would happen to us. Our greatest problem, and we've got to pray against it, is that, that we will hear the voice of men louder than the voice of God. Now, my instinct when uh, we face opposition is to pray for safety. Uh, Praying for Christians in in Egypt over the past week, I've certainly prayed for uh, their deliverance and their well-being. But I've also been challenged to pray for their courage to proclaim Jesus and keep doing good. So as one prayer book prayer puts it, um, Almighty and everlasting God, in tender love toward mankind, you sent your Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ, to take our nature upon him, to suffer death on the cross, that all mankind should follow the example of his great humility. Grant that we may follow the example of his suffering and also be made partakers of his resurrection. See, aside from when I've used the prayer book and been in services with the prayer book, I can't recall being in a church service where we prayed to follow Christ's example in that way. Salvation is found in no other name but it's not a name everyone wants to hear. And so I've started making courage and boldness before opposition a regular prayer for for me, but also for our congregation. So how is Kira really going to respond if, if we did remarkable goodness in the name of Jesus? I expect some of our good deeds won't go unpunished. But thankfully, I also expect there's going to be a large number of this suburb praising our Lord and Saviour and finding refreshment. Why don't we pray that God would make us courageous. Let's pray. Our Lord and Father, we thank you for the name of Jesus, that there is salvation in him and no other. We ask, Father, that you would fill us with boldness and courage, confidence that what he does and continues to do is the very best. Give us courage to do good in his name. Give us courage to do works but also speak words. Give us boldness to proclaim the goodness of Christ and the salvation he's won.